0: We've been talking about being set free. We are set free from by God's salvation and greatness, by God's power to control individual and corporate destiny. We're set free through the perfect servant Messiah. We're set free by redemption. We're set free by the true and the living God. We're set free by His power to work and to will and to deliver us from His judgment and wrath. We are set free by his plan of redemption. We are set free by being delivered from God's judgment and wrath. And you'll remember that when we began this section all the way back in chapter 40, you'll remember the opening prophecy. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. For the last eight chapters, we've been told over and over again that in the midst of pain and problem and persecution and bondage, we have hope. We understand that, again, over 150 years before it ever happened, Isaiah prophesies that the children of Israel will be taken from Jerusalem and Judah. Their cities will be destroyed. They'll be taken to Babylon 400 miles away. And in the midst of that horror and destruction, they, many, will come to the conclusion that God has failed. That His promises have failed. Because the temple is gone. And sometimes we come to a place in our own life where, because of our failure, because of our rebellion, and we because of our disobedience, we, be, we find ourselves in moments of slavery. Slavery still exists. This week on my radio program, I was doing um, a little... Um, thing about the problem of slavery in the Sudan and in Polaris project I found this it says quote trafficking in persons also what is human trafficking trafficking in persons also known as human trafficking is the modern practice of slavery it is the second largest criminal industry in the world today after arms and drug dealing and it is the fastest growing traffickers generate billions of dollars in profits Every year, while victimizing millions of people around the globe, it says trafficked persons are forced or coerced into labor or sexual exploitation under international law. All children who are commercially sexually exploited are considered trafficking victims, even if no force or coercion is used. We know that the problem is considerable. But we also know that the immediate testimony of the Bible has always been that those people who embrace sin are slaves to sin. And once again, the Lord rebukes Israel for her stubbornness and her hypocrisy. And in this particular passage, he will bring charges against his people in verses 1 through 8. And then he will talk about his long-suffering for his people in verses 9 through 11. And then we come to the end, the Lord's design for his people. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 first of all. It says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah. Who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate, and your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze. Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. Lest you should say, My idol has done them, and My carved image and My molded image have commanded them. You have heard. See all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and we're called a transgressor from the womb. In the opening passage in verse 1 where it says, Hear this. The word or a, a cognate for the word here is is going to appear 10 times in this chapter. And the word in the Hebrew language for here is is an interesting word. It's, it's the Hebrew word sama. And it means... To not only hear what a person is saying, but it, it means to hear in such a way that you understand and respond. Every mother knows this word. Every mother who has leaned over the face of a child and looked in the child's face and said, You're not listening. I need you to hear what I'm saying. You're not listening when a wife says it to her husband. You're Not listening. The right response, husbands, every time is help me understand what it is that you're saying. Because that's part of the point. It means to listen in such a way that you get it. Because part of the point that is being made in this particular chapter is the reason why the children of Israel will find themselves in bondage, in slavery uprooted from Jerusalem and placed in captivity is because they weren't listening. They didn't listen to the promises of God. They didn't listen to the warnings of God. They didn't listen to what God had to say. And typically when we find ourselves in trouble, isn't it true, ladies and gentlemen, it's because we weren't hearing what God had to say. Remember what it says in the New Testament? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God, Isaiah knew this, that faith, confident trust in God would come when you hear the words of God. And in verse 2 it says, For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now you have to understand something. The Jewish people made special claims about themselves. Every Jew considered himself or herself to be the offspring of Jacob. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, a member of God's chosen family, God's chosen race. In other words, in the beginning, he's calling reference to the fact who are called by the name of Israel. The meaning in this particular passage and in this particular context means we are the people of God. We're the right race. We're the true People, We are the true witness. And when it says the wellsprings of Judah, remember out of all the tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes are taken and displaced. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin are in the south. But remember, Judah is the royal tribe. And so even among the Jewish people, it was one thing to be a Jew, but it was another thing to be of the royal tribe of Judah. So the idea is this is the tribe through whom the Messiah would come. It would appear that a Jew born of the tribe of Judah considered themselves doubly blessed by God in the sense that they were the upper crust, the superior society, if you will. Another claim was the ability on the name of the Lord. It says, OK, you're called Jacob, you're called by the name of Israel, you come from the wellsprings of Judah, you swear by the name of the Lord, the idea being When you are a Jew and you swear by the name of the Lord, you are in effect saying, I believe in the Lord. I accept the word of God. And so that the things that I'm saying and the things that I'm doing, it's because I believe in the God that I'm swearing by. One of the ways of thinking about this. The idea of being a Jew based on his or her actions was was based on the belief in the Lord. And so, in, in other words, when a Jew acted in a particular way, it was based on their belief in the Lord. One of the other ideas is to swear an oath, verifying the claim of a promise. Sort of like, again, in our culture, in our society, when a person looks at you and they say, swear to God, what does that mean? You hope it would mean... okay tell me, swear to God? What are you saying? You're not lying? Are, are you trying to make an appeal to me that, you, that you're telling the truth? Or is it, are you telling me that you normally lie, but this time you're telling the truth because you're swearing by God? Next time someone says swear to God, You need to say to him, okay, now let me make sure I understand the God you're swearing by. Is this the God of the Bible? Is this the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is this the God who reveals himself in the Old and the New Testament? Is this the God who sent Jesus? Is this the God who reveals himself in the Word of God? Is that the God you're swearing by? Because the implication is you're swearing by something that you actually believe in. A Jew claimed to esteem Jerusalem as the capital of God. They are citizens of God and the kingdom of God where the temple of God and the worship of God is taking place. And that's part of the point of this particular passage. The Jew who claimed to trust in his paternity, his tribal identity, and then to swear by the living Lord to lead him and guide him and meet his needs. The, the whole idea is that that's what it means. But what the Lord is saying is that they're liars, they're stubborn, and they're hypocrites because they're making all of those claims, but their claims aren't exactly honest. They claim to be the right people, the right witness from the right tribe. Many Jews. Some might even suggest most Jews, when Isaiah is writing these words, weren't living in a way that was consistent with the revelation of God. They weren't obeying the Lord. They weren't keeping God's holy commandments. Their disobedience betrayed their dishonesty. Their hypocrisy proved that they didn't really love and follow the Lord. Remember, even in the New Testament, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. This isn't rocket science. Their disobedience discredited their their profession. The Lord is pointing out their hypocrisy. You say you're a Jew, you swear by God, you you claim to know the promises of God, then what are you doing? Their disobedience discredited their profession within the depths of their, their heart. They didn't sincerely accept God as God, as Savior, as Deliverer. Because the rejection of the commandments was irrefutable proof of their insincerity. For they call themselves after the holy city, but they don't lean on the Lord. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and... They came to pass. In other words, when he says, I'm the Lord of hosts, he's talking about his unique relationship with them. He's the God who knows the beginning from the end. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. He's contrasting himself with all of the false and phony gods. Because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron (laughs) Sin you. <laughs> I think you know what that means. They're stubborn. Now again, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 19, or excuse me, in Matthew 15, 7 through 9, Jesus said hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. When he's talking from that particular passage in Matthew, he's making reference to these passages. Isaiah warned about hypocrisy and superficial obedience. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah and Jesus both said words matter, actions matter, behavior matters. We live in a world where people think it doesn't really matter what I think or what I say or what I do. Just so long as I believe Jesus in my heart. You know what? There's something really, 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 really wrong with that thinking. Because having Jesus in your heart means that you also have him on your lips. It also means you have him in your brain. It also means that you have him in the real world in which you live. When your words and your behavior don't match your beliefs, that is the meaning of the word hypocrite. The children of Israel weren't living righteous lives. They weren't obeying God's commands. They weren't really following him. And so in verse three, where he says, I've declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth centuries before the promises occurred. Things happened. God predicted certain events and he brought them to pass. He didn't do this to show off. He didn't do this just to dramatically prove his identity, but rather listen to what the text itself says because of the hardness and the rebellion of his people. He revealed the future because people are by nature and by choice skeptical. Prove it to me. You're God, prove it. Lord, if you're there, prove it. Write my name in the clouds. Ha! I knew you weren't there. You see, he did this. And the short list, think carefully, just, just do a little mental check. God called Abraham, gave promises to Abraham. He delivers the children of Jacob from slavery in Egypt. He establishes them as a nation. Moses gives them the law, the conquest of Canaan and the giving of the promised land. The wonderful deliverance that will already have taken place when God delivers the people of Jerusalem from from the Assyrian oppression. This, that's just the short list of all the things that God did. And then in verse 4, because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze. You've heard the, you know, stiff neck. The idea of having a stiff neck, when you have a stiff neck, you know what makes it difficult? It makes it difficult to lean to the left, lean to the right. When you're stiff neck, it makes it hard to look up and it makes it hard to look down. It becomes a type and a picture of the stubborn and willful group of people. Think of it. If your, your if your neck is iron and your forehead is made of bronze, you remember the stupid, uh, you could have had a V8? The idea is you keep knocking against that head. You keep knocking against that head. But it doesn't seem like anybody's home. That's what he's saying. I knew that you were obstinate. Your neck was iron. Your brow bronze. You swear by my name. You make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth. That's what it says. Not in truth. Not in righteousness. When you mention the God of Israel, the implication is that you know Him and you love Him and you obey Him. It's the same thing again for us. When we mention the name Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. You said the name Jesus. Oh, does that mean you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Well, you said Jesus, so I was under the impression that you knew him and that you loved him. Oh, you you don't really know him? You just know about him? You see, when a person says, I'm a Christian, isn't the immediate expectation... Oh, you're a Christian, so you're going to talk like a Christian. You're going to act like a Christian. You're going to behave like a Christian. You're going to... Well, I am a Christian. Well, why don't you act like one? I'm an inconsistent Christian. Do you notice how hard it is for us to use the word hypocrisy? The people of God were stubborn. No matter how you say it. Obstinate. Muleish stiff-necked in the end look what it says in verse 5 even from the beginning I've declared it to you before it came to pass I proclaimed it to you lest you should say my idol has done them and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them remember the obstinacy and the stubbornness is their peculiar their peculiar willingness to keep sliding back into idolatry another reason for predictive prophecy was to keep the children of Israel from falsely claiming that idols false gods had helped them out it's fate it's coincidence It was just a coincidence that this happened. No, over and over again, the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Your life is in God's hands. Things don't happen by accident. In verse 6, you have heard... You have heard, again, remember there's that word again. You've heard the idea being, you heard it, you should have understood it, you should have got it. See all this and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things. You didn't know them. Here's the idea. In the past, I've given you revelation. I predicted things that were going to happen. Guess what I'm going to do? I am going to actually predict something even new that you haven't heard about before. Did God expect something? Well, the answer is yes. God expected them to hear. God expected them to see. God expected them to confess Him as the one, the only, the true, the living God, the only God who knows the future, the only God who would bring things to pass. And so God gave them a new revelation. I've given you revelation in the past. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you even more revelation. Revelation in the present, greater information to keep them from claiming that it was their own efforts that delivered them. He doesn't tell us right at this point what it will be, but we know what it will be. In verse seven, it says they are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day, you have not heard them, lest you should say, oh, well, of course I knew them. Again, what's the reason for the new Revelation. To keep them from claiming it was their own effort or ingenuity that delivered them. Verse 8, surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. Now think about what he's saying. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the prophets. they've, They've all communicated, Samuel, David, what was the reason for the new revelation? Again, to help them understand. Here's here's an amazing statement. They never heard or understood the prophecies. They had had the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This, here's the amazing statement. They never understood this. This would be like if you can imagine a person who's grown up in the church. They've read their Bible. they heard the stories about David and Goliath. How he killed a lion with his bare hands and a bear with his bare hands. The story of the giant with, which he hits in the forehead. over and All of the great stories that, that you hear growing up. And then the person says, well, didn't, didn't you hear these stories? Well, I heard them didn't you understand them? I I thought I did. The Lord is saying, you've really not been listening. And the reason why you haven't been listening and the reason why you haven't understood the prophecies is because you were born a rebel, born a a sinner, a transgressor from birth. And part of the point of the passage, God is going to reveal new things to the generation of Isaiah. These events were apparently deliberately hidden to prevent the people from claiming they knew about them beforehand. The new prophecies, by the way, just... From what we've learned so far, the raising up of Cyrus in verse 14. Remember, he's going to call the Medo-Persian king to come down and deliver them from Babylon. The fall of Babylon and Israel's restoration in verses 20 through 21. The coming suffering and atoning death of God's Messiah. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, all the way to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. There's going to be a coming age of salvation in Christ. We're going to learn about that in Isaiah chapter 65. There's going to be a messianic age. There's going to be the creation of a new heavens and a new earth and an eternal universe in Isaiah, chapter 65, verses 17 through 20, 25. So again, Isaiah prophesying by the power of the Holy Spirit is is going to say all of the stuff that I told you before. I'm going to tell you that and more. The Lord revealed these events to the Jews and to future generations for one purpose and one purpose only so that people would understand that He's the true and the living God and that He alone is to be worshipped and praised. He's, he alone deserves our heart. He alone is the one who's worthy to be worshipped, but people have hardened their hearts. And remember, we live in a world... Well, didn't you hear the story? Didn't you hear how Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden and didn't you hear how God drove them out and didn't you hear about Cain and Abel and didn't you hear about Noah and the flood and didn't you hear that God promised that he was going to send a Messiah through Abraham and through Isaac and then Jacob and then Judah and David didn't you hear didn't you understand that all of life and all of circumstances was, was going to bring about a Messiah didn't you understand that but here's the idea They hardened their heart against God. They closed their ears to his prophecies. They refused to see the promises of God. And by the way, that rejection and that refusal would also be fulfilled in Christ. And here's Isaiah's statement. They would do this, listen carefully, not because they were ignorant. Not because they didn't have a chance to hear. But they were willfully, deliberately blind. People reject God. And people reject His prophetic word. Because they're traitors. Because they're rebels from birth. Because they deliberately choose to be stubborn. They deliberately choose to be hard-hearted. They deliberately choose to be stiff-necked towards the Lord. They reject the Lord despite the fact of his prophetic word and here is the point that God is making through the prophet Isaiah as he's speaking to the children of Israel you should have listened because the word of God listen carefully demands belief requires righteousness this is a shocker to the people who live in our culture and society you mean you read the bible yeah you mean you no you're kidding right you believe the bible our right response should be you're kidding you don't Are you seriously going to tell me that you don't believe what the Bible says? Well, you know, you can't trust it. It was written by men over thousands of years. It's been corrupted and interpolated, extrapolated, and it's filled with contradictions. Man, after years of study, you've come to that conclusion. Can you talk about some of those contradictions? Not really. You're joking, right? Are you seriously going to tell me you reject everything that it says and you haven't even read it? Yeah. Now listen to this. Look what it says in verse 9. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise... I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Do you notice what's happening? The Lord is talking about his patience and, and his long-suffering. By the way, long-suffering, do you know what that word is? Long-suffering is more than just the virtue of patience. Long-suffering is the virtue of patience under fire. Long-suffering is that characteristic which wives have towards their husbands who, where the wife has to say, you're not listening to me. That when we're pig-headed and stubborn and obstinate and stupid, this is the long-suffering that bears under trial, provocation, intimidation. This is the, the patience that, that takes place. Uh, imagine when your patience has been tested and you come to the end of your rope and you, you don't think you can last for one moment longer because you're so upset and then you at last just a little bit longer. That's long-suffering. The Lord doesn't excuse their unbelief or hypocrisy or stubbornness. He is patient. He's not willing that any should perish. With a heart full of love for His people, God delays judgment. The Lord puts up with their insincere and obstinate behavior. For Look what He's doing. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. Note what He doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm going to defer my anger just because you're such a nice person and you're such a good and sweet and honorable person. He says, I'm going to defer my judgment for my name's sake. It's his way of saying, guess what? I'm going to fulfill all the plans and the purposes that I've had since the beginning. I will defer my anger and for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. It's God's way of saying, I- I'm, you know what? I'm not going to turn you into toast. I'm not going to crush you into powder. I'm not going to judge you yet. I'm going to delay judgment. But judgment delayed is not judgment denied. And remember why he's doing it. God delays his judgment because of his name's sake. He defers his anger and for my praise, I will restrain it from you. Everyone willing to turn from their insincere, despicable, wicked behavior. The Lord will deliver them from the bondage and oppression of their enemies. Even then, he's saying, guess what? I'm still willing to accept your repentance. I'm still willing to... To have you turn from your sin and turn to me. Think carefully. The people deserve to be condemned. They deserve to be condemned for their unrelenting wickedness. But the Lord has mercy on them. He won't cut them off. And He gives four reasons for not deferring His wrath. Number one, He's patient. He shows mercy so that people will praise His name. That's what it says in verse 9. When a person takes a good, hard look at sin in this world and sin in his wicked heart, when, it, when you look out, haven't you ever just seen something that was so horrible and terrible and wicked that you thought, this is it? How could God possibly delay his judgment? Billy Graham was famous for saying, if God doesn't judge San Francisco, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. What? What? Yes, we've come to the end of our rope. We, we can't survive one more wicked day. Sin brings death. And death is the reward for rebellion against God. But out of mercy, God delays judgment. He delays judgment. You've heard me say over and over again, grace precedes judgment. And number two, God is patient, showing mercy. In order to refine his people in, in the furnace of affliction. Look what it says in verse 10 Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. Here's the idea. The children of Israel would face the fire of affliction, persecution, enslavement. And this refinement continues to this day. He says, Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. Now, remember what happens when you refine silver. You take all of the dross. The dross is all of the chemical impurities. The whole point of refining silver is to take the impurities out so that you have pure, unadulterated silver. The process has an end point. Purity without dross. The process continues until the person or the thing is completely purged. And so he's in effect saying, I'm purging you, but we're not done. The purging is incomplete. Silver is valuable. But it's most valuable when it's most pure. You're valuable. But you're most Valuable when you're pure. God's people are refined through pain sometimes and hardship and the sufferings they endure. We grow in character and faith. We draw close to the Lord in worship and prayer. Suffering arouses a person to call on the Lord for God's provision and God's help. Now remember, remember, remember what's happening. The children of Israel will be taken from Judah and Jerusalem. They're placed in a foreign country. They are slaves and they are captive and they think that their world is over with. And God wants them to cry out to Him. Even then, my life is over. Not yet. Everything that I thought was good and decent is gone in my life. No, it isn't. But for the unbeliever and the make-believer, who remains stubborn and hardened in their heart, the pain, the suffering, the hardship, creates Bitterness. Have you ever met someone who is so mad at God? I'm so angry with God. God allowed my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter to be killed. God allowed this to happen. God allowed me to lose my job. God, God God did this. God did this. God did this. God did this. And God did that. And so I don't go to church anymore. And I don't read the Bible anymore. And I don't pray anymore. Because what's the use? point of the pain and the hardship and the suffering is to bring you to a place of humility and brokenness so that you'll cry out to the Lord. In Zechariah chapter 13 verse 1 it says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah pictures a time when... The cleansing and the purging is going to take place. And then in verse 11 it says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. He repeats it in the short verse. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned or defamed? And I will not give my glory to another. Do you know what he's, he's saying? The Lord is patient and long-suffering, showing His mercy in order to honor His name. And to keep His name from being profaned or defamed. The words for my sake again are emphasized. God is absolutely determined to protect the integrity of His name. And to protect the integrity of His word. Here's what He's in effect saying. I won't cease to be God. Because in order for me to fail in my promises, I would have to cease being God. And I won't do that. God is absolutely determined to make the promise come true. And this is supposed to bring reassurance to the believer. And Now, I want you to think carefully. If God had exercised his wrath and judgment on Isaiah's day, his promise of redemption that they would be saved would have been left unfulfilled. Just like in the day of Moses, remember, God says, I, look here, Moses, here's the deal. Why don't we I'll just kill everybody and I'm going to start over with you. Do you remember the story? And Moses began to plead. And as he pleaded, he, he appealed to God's patience and long-suffering and protecting his word. What will the Egyptians say? What will people think? You go through all of these extraordinary plagues and circumstances in order to, to secure your integrity. That means the prophecies would have failed. And they wouldn't have come to pass. But by keeping and fulfilling his promises, he honors his name. No one, I repeat, no one, no one can honestly, biblically accuse God of failing to keep his promises. He always keeps his word. He will do what he promises. And number four, God is patient, protecting his glory. When you come to the end... For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. What does that mean? Well, the glory of God in the ancient world was called the Shekinah. It was the substance of His identity. It was the splendor and the magnificence. The Lord is glorious. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is a glorious being. He is the exquisite, beautiful, brilliant. He is light. He is holy. He is radiant. He is powerful. It's the things that we're supposed to be singing about as we're praising Him in worship. You are holy. Now, even when we sing the song, You're the air I breathe, we're not talking about the HQO. We're not talking about high Hydrogen and oxygen. God isn't the, the 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 air that we suck into our lungs and we exhale as carbon dioxide. The meaning of the song is He is the very substance, if you will. He is He's the one who keeps our heart. Beating, He is the one that keeps our lungs moving. He is light. He is radiant. The magnificence of God shines so bright that when the new heavens and the new earth are created, there are no sun and moon and stars because the radiance of His magnificent glory fills the universe. And the glory of praise and honor, He won't share with any other being. God's majesty and righteousness are so potent that it would consume any sinner or imperfect being. This is proof positive that God is Jesus. And Jesus is God. How else do you explain that all power and all glory and all all honor belong to Jesus? Look what it says. At the end of the verse... And I will not give my glory to another. Either this is a hopeless contradiction or Jesus is God. Because he receives all honor, all glory, all praise. God is patient with the human race. Now what am I telling you all? Because God is patient with you. Even when you're obstinate, your neck is like iron and your brow is like brass. I'm going to do what I want to do. I know the Bible pretty much forbids me from doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Oh, obstinate, willful person. God is patient. God's putting up with a lot from you. God is patient. God is patient. He's delaying his judgment. He delays his judgment against the ungodly and the unjust because he is long suffering. He yearns for people and nations to repent, to turn back to him, to turn away from their sinful behavior. He's merciful. He's willing to forgive. He's willing to forgive people who will truly repent. Luke chapter one verse fifty it says and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation in Romans chapter nine verse twenty two what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction First Peter three twenty who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight souls were saved through water God was patient. God was patient. God was patient. But I want you to know something. Noah's blood did come. It eventually came. The wrath of God eventually came. And look what it says in verse 12. The Lord's design for His people. Verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. Listen to me. There's that word again. Listen. Again, think of your mother looking you in the eye, or your wife. You're not hearing what I'm saying. The word, when you see that word listen, it means listen in such a way that you hear and you're willing to actually do what he says. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. It's his way of saying, I am. I'm there in the beginning and I'm there in the end. Verse 13. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. I am the Creator. Verse 14. All of you assemble yourselves and hear. Excuse me. Thank you, he does. There's the word again. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. In verse 14, you know who I think he's talking about? He's talking about Cyrus. The Lord loves him. Why? Because Cyrus, the Persian king, he's going to come from Persia and he's going to defeat the Babylonians and the children of Israel are going to be, de- going to be liberated. But he's a pagan. He's a wicked man and he does evil things. I think what this means is that the Lord loves anyone and everyone who's willing to do exactly what he wants them to do. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to bring my will to pass. The prophecy is going to come true. I'm going to use the instrument that I intend to use. And I'm going to liberate you. And then look what it says in verse 15. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him. And his way will prosper. Now think about it. Remember what I told you. Cyrus is the servant of the Lord. Israel is the servant of the Lord. But there's another servant of the Lord, Messiah, Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, will do what God has intended. His way will prosper. You know what this means? It's unstoppable. Nothing will stop him. Verse 16, come near to me, hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. What? Read it again. Come near to me. Hear this. I've not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. I was there, and now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Well, wait a minute. Who's speaking? Is this Isaiah? Isaiah? No. This is God. People often ask me, well, where can you find the New Testament concept of the Trinity in the Old Testament? It's right there. And now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Who's me? I think it's God's Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, who's speaking? It's Jehovah God. It's not not Isaiah. Could it be any clearer? The servant isn't Isaiah, it's the Messiah. The Lord God and His Spirit have sent the Messiah. And look at what it says in verses 17 and 8. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. (laughs) Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Ray Ortlund has a quote on this particular passage. He writes, I need to share it with you. The love of God does not shield us from the immediate impact of our sins. This generation of God's people long ago broke his heart. What he longed for was their peace and righteousness flowing in abundance, but they wouldn't listen. They didn't defeat God, but he did withhold from them the fullness of of covenant blessing. He wrote them off, Luke nineteen forty one. We would be fools not to take warning, this warning to heart, unquote. Listen to what it says again. Thus says the Lord. He uses the covenant language. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Here's what he's saying. Remember, I wish you would have listened. I wish you would have listened. Well, what will happen if we do listen? Look at verse 19 your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would have not been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Verse 20, go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth, say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. He's looking into time and space and into the future when Babylon is destroyed where the Assyrians take them out and he's saying, get up. I have told you, I'm setting you free. Utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. He's taken him out of slavery and bondage. Then verse 21, And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. He gives that mosaic example of the Old Testament in the book of Moses, where the children of Israel in Exodus are leaving Egypt, they're in the wilderness. And remember when Moses strikes the rock and the rock is split open and out comes water. Here's the idea that even in the midst of the situation, he's going to liberate them and, and provide for them. There is peace for the righteous. There is peace for those who will turn from their sin. There is peace for those who turn to the Lord these verses bring the chapter all the way from 40 to 48 to a climax. What is God saying? There comes a moment when every one of us decide when we ask the question, are we going to settle down in Babylon? Are we going to venture out into the redemption of Christ? As in the exodus of Egypt, God is calling the people to an adventure of faith and he promises to satisfy them all along the way. He says, look, come out of slavery and bondage. Come into liberation and freedom in Christ. And I'll take care of you. I'll make water come out of a rock. Now I know the right, for people who think about things, they go, well, wait a minute, you can't get water out of a rock. Oh, yes, you can. In fact, he even knows how to nail a perfect man to a cross so that mercy gushes out. How can you nail someone to a cross and then experience forgiveness and hope and redemption and reconciliation? It's because there is life and there is love and there is forgiveness in Christ. But look what it says in verse 22. There's no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked There's peace for the righteous. There's peace for those who will turn from their sin. There's peace for those who will turn to the Lord. There's peace for those who will come to Christ. But there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Here's the point. Isaiah doesn't offer hope for the make-believer. The person who names the name of the Lord, who claims Israel and Jerusalem, and then continues in wickedness and rebellion, should have no expectation for peace. The ultimate, the ultimate, the ultimate wickedness is to continually resist and then ultimately reject the grace of God in Christ Jesus. No peace is not something arbitrary, it is inevitable. I want peace, but I don't want the God of the Bible and I don't want the Jesus of the Bible. What do you want? I want to continue to live my life the way I want to live my life. Quite apart from God and quite apart from Jesus. Guess what? There is no peace for the wicked. And what's more wicked? What is the ultimate wickedness? The ultimate wickedness has to be To look God in the face And say I reject your offer Of hope and forgiveness and grace And mercy in Jesus No thank you I still want peace I I want To know that I can still go to heaven And I, I want to experience forgiveness And I want to experience hope That's why That's why the promise of God in Christ would have to take place. The rest of the book of Isaiah is going to be devoted to that promise. Oh, but I need to let you guys go. Heavenly Father, there is peace for the righteous. There is peace for those who will turn from their sin. There is peace for those who turn to the Lord, there, there is peace for those who will cry out for forgiveness and grace. There is peace for those who desire mercy in Christ. There is peace. Lord, Paul was right when he said, Now the peace of God guard your hearts with all understanding. And that we would experience joy and peace in Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have fullness of joy, Mm -hmm. grace, and mercy, and real peace. The peace of a person forgiven, restored. The peace of a person who embraces the promise of God. i